0: trapped at the bottom of the sea by Simon hemelrich His air supply cord severed. Commercial diver Chris Lemons had minutes to live. Leaving his fiancé to go to work was harder for Chris Lemons than for most people. The deep-sea diver was typically away for four weeks, several times a year. As Chris, 32, readied to leave one day in September 2012, for a job replacing oil pipes at the bottom of the North Sea, 200 kilometres off Aberdeen, northeast Scotland. He gave Morag the usual reassurances. Don't worry, it's a carefully controlled environment. I'll miss you, replied the 39-year-old school headmistress, but we'll keep in touch all the time. The couple met five years earlier at a party in Danoon, west of Glasgow, where Morag worked at a primary school. Chris, a 1.9-metre-tall man from Cambridge, England, was a diver and dive-boat crewman taking a course in the area. He loved Morag's gregariousness, while she found him kind and funny. They started dating and soon Chris moved in with her. They lived frugally while he trained in specialised saturation, sat-diving, in 2011, a job that involved maintaining seabed pipes for the oil and gas industry. It had its risks, from decompression sickness to drowning. Several saturation divers had died in recent decades around the world, but Morag knew how much it meant to him. And it paid well, helping the couple plan an exciting future together. Their wedding was set for the following April. Morag had recently started working at a school in Malag in the Scottish Highlands, and the couple were building a dream house overlooking the sea. They talked about having children, and after the kids finished their education, moving to France where Chris had family. It was a joyful time. It's called saturation diving because, at the intense pressures found in the deep sea, gas that a diver breathes saturates into his body. When he surfaces and the pressure drops, this gas can emerge as deadly bubbles in his tissues, causing decompression sickness, a.k.a. the bends. SAT divers reduced this risk by living full-time in a pressurised chamber within the dive ship. For this job, Chris and his three-man team would be sharing the SAT chamber with three other teams aboard the 106-metre vessel Topaz for a month. He was delighted to learn he'd be working with Duncan Alcock. The 50-year-old had been diving in the North Sea for 17 years and had worked with Chris on his first few dives when he qualified 18 months earlier becoming Chris's unofficial mentor. In a competitive industry with only short-term contracts, Duncan had striven to make Chris look good in front of supervisors, giving him advice and nudging him away from mistakes. If you're unsure about something, don't blag it. I'll talk you through, he'd reassured Chris. The pair had become friends. The third team member would be David Uasa, whom Chris knew by his excellent reputation. For the first few days in the chamber, The men chatted about Chris's house build and upcoming wedding and Duncan's son, who'd just started working in diving. Chris couldn't speak to Morag properly. Helium in the chamber made the divers' voices high-pitched and distorted. But they kept connected by email, and Morag sent pictures of her adventures cycling or climbing local mountains. Just before 9pm on September 18, it was Chris's team's turn to dive. The three transferred to a diving bell, which was lowered on cables around 75 metres below the topaz. Chris and David descended a further 15 metres to replace some pipe on a structure resting on the seabed. Each man was connected to the bell by an umbilical cord attached at the hip to their diving suits. It was a five centimetre-thick cluster of tubes carrying their air, a communications line, electricity for the lamps and cameras on their helmets and hot water to keep their suits warm on the four-degree seabed. At the core was a steel-reinforced rope. Each diver had 50 metres of this lifeline, coiled ready on a rack inside the bell. Duncan fed this out as needed. Above water, the wind was about 30 knots, 55 kilometres per hour, and the sea four metres high. Rough, but nothing Topaz couldn't handle. Instead of fixed propellers... The ship had five thrusters that could each be rotated. A dynamic positioning system kept the ship locked in place by constantly adjusting these, so there was no need for an anchor. Though it was a routine job, as Duncan secured Chris's heavy helmet, he said, there's no rush, take your time. Chris gave him the thumbs up. He felt relaxed, focused, ready to go. Dropping through the 80 centimetre hole at the bottom of the bell and into the dark ocean was always a magical moment for Chris. Leaving behind the claustrophobic sat chamber and the bell, he felt weightless, sediment and fleeting marine life highlighted by his helmet lamp. He and David started working within the manifold, a structure nine metres high and 20 metres long, with pipes and valves that managed the oil flow from the wells to the platforms toiling a metre apart with wrenches and other tools, the pair were expected to be underwater for six hours. Up on the ship, dive supervisor Craig Frederick sat before a bank of controls and monitors, showing the camera feeds from the divers' helmets. He followed their progress, giving instructions by intercom for each stage of the job. Meanwhile, in the cramped bell, Duncan sat surrounded by gauges. He monitored his colleagues' oxygen and carbon dioxide levels, but he had no communication with them. Chris had been working around an hour when he heard a noise in Craig's control room. An alarm. Perhaps the crew were running a test. Alarmingly, the green light on Craig's instrument panel was suddenly amber, then red. I've never seen that before, Craig thought. Topaz had a major problem. The positioning system had failed and the boat was drifting and would soon drag the divers with it. Leave your tools and get back to the bell, Craig ordered. It was a highly unusual request, but Chris and David started climbing hand over hand up their umbilical cords towards the top of the structure. In the bell, Duncan, who couldn't see what Chris and David's helmet cameras relayed, didn't know what was happening, but followed Craig's instructions to start hauling in the cords. Glancing up, Chris had expected to see the bell's lights, but there was only blackness. Then, as he reached the top of the manifold... He felt his umbilical cord tugging and saw it had looped around a metal outcrop. He struggled to unhitch it, but the knot only pulled tighter. What's going on, Chris thought. In the bell, Duncan saw Chris's umbilical cord was suddenly taut. Give Diver 2 more slack, Craig ordered. I can't, Duncan replied. Not only was it too tight, the cord was pulling its rack off the wall, steel struts bending, bolts groaning. It was unthinkable. If the cord broke, it would leave Chris adrift and without oxygen. Duncan also knew that in this tiny space, if it came loose, it would knock him through the bottom of the bell into the water. He quickly climbed onto his seat to get out of the way. But there was nothing he could do for Chris. As Chris struggled to free himself, David desperately tried to get back to help, flailing his arms against the water. He almost made it. The two divers' hands were just a couple of metres apart when David's cord yanked him away. Chris saw a look of resignation and apology on David's face as he disappeared into the dark. Chris redoubled his frantic attempts to dislodge the cord. He heard it creak ominously, and then the air supply line broke, followed by the communications feed. Unable to inhale, Chris opened the emergency air tank on his back, as he'd done many times in training. Seconds later, there was a noise like a shotgun as the cable snapped. His lifeline was now completely severed. Chris was thrown backwards. Slowly sinking, his helmet was silent without the intercom, his lights dead, and his suit was beginning to cool. He knew he had about eight minutes of oxygen. In the bell, Duncan feverishly pulled up the suddenly slack umbilical, hoping Chris would be on the end of it. His heart sank as the broken hot water hose came up. Then came the hissing airline. He felt sick. I've lost my diver, he shouted to Craig. Landing on the soft seabed, Chris struggled to his feet in total darkness. The ship could track him via a beacon on his suit, but he knew if he could get himself to the top of the manifold, there was a better chance of rescue before his oxygen ran out. Yet he had no idea where it was. What if he walked the wrong way? into the blackness. He picked a direction almost at random and took small steps, feeling only the mud beneath his feet. Suddenly his outstretched hands struck metal. He grasped it in relief. He began struggling up the structure, breathing hard. Reaching the top, he still couldn't see the bell. Not a speck of light. Where had Topaz gone? He crawled onto the platform and clung to the metal grill, terrified the current would drag him away. He reckoned he had about five minutes of air left, a terrifying thought. He knew his chances of surviving this were slim. Yet the situation was even worse than he realised. The ship was now some 225 metres away. The crew were desperately trying to steer it back, but without the positioning system, it took two people to manually coordinate the thrusters. Topaz was zigzagging slowly against the waves. The minutes passed and Chris's fear turned to grief. This is probably where I die. He'd never see their house finished, never have children. I'm sorry, Morag, he called out. His mind fumbled with mundane practicalities. Does she know when the next payment for the building work is due? He shouted out for Duncan. Where are you? His chest grew tighter as his oxygen dwindled. I hope dying doesn't hurt. He felt himself slowly slipping into unconsciousness. Craig had ordered Topaz's remotely operated underwater vehicle to descend and look for Chris. It sent back pictures of him lying on the metal grill. His hands seemed to be twitching. But was he still alive, or were his limbs just moving in the current? It had been 16 minutes since the umbilical cord had snapped. By now David had made it back to the bell, poised to retrieve Chris if they could get in position. Craig kept him and Duncan updated on the boat's progress, though he massaged the truce to keep their spirits up. We're nearly there. David already assumed he'd be recovering a body. Duncan's thoughts were darkening too, and he wondered how he would tell Morag that her fiancé wasn't coming home. The wait was agonising, but he tried to keep hope alive. We've not forgotten you, lad. Hang in there. Attempts by Topaz's engineers to re-engage the positioning system had been futile. So in desperation, they shut it down and restarted it. Amazingly, this worked. But more than 25 minutes had now passed since Chris's umbilical cord had snapped. Finally, with the ship over the dive site, David dropped down and found Chris lying on his back. He briefly glanced through Chris's mask. Ominously, there was water inside. He clipped Chris onto him with a rescue lanyard and began hauling them both up his umbilical cord. David was fit, but Chris was a big man. It was like trying to carry a giant starfish. By the time he pushed Chris's upper body into the bell, another six minutes had passed. Duncan unclipped Chris's helmet. The diver's eyes were closed his bald head as blue as a pair of jeans. Duncan knew there was little chance of surviving that long without oxygen, but with nothing to lose, he kept talking. You've had an accident. I'm going to give you CPR. He gave Chris two breaths. Unbelievably, Chris suddenly inhaled. His eyes opened. He blinked. Duncan could have danced a jig. He's back with us! For Craig, watching via monitor, it was a big moment. Are you all right, he asked on the intercom. Chris gave a weak thumbs up. Duncan probed Chris with questions after flushing his suit with hot water. Do you know where you are? Yeah. You know you've had a broken umbilical? Yeah. Chris was groggy but, remarkably, seemed himself. Back in the ship's sat chamber, he got medical attention while David and Duncan had a bit of a hug. Once Duncan was stable, they visited him. More hugs followed. Over the next three days, as the men depressurized on Topaz, which was now docked at Aberdeen, they talked over what had happened. It helped them deal with the shock. Duncan gently teased Chris about the CPR. Snogging on a dive is not normally done, you know. How Chris survived without brain damage remains unclear. The oxygen in divers' gas is about four times richer than normal air, so his body may have been saturated with enough to keep him going. Hypothermia could have put him in shutdown mode too, sending oxygen to his vital organs. When Chris phoned Morag, she was horrified and raced across Scotland to meet him as he disembarked Topaz. They kissed and hugged for a long time. For a distraction, they went to the cinema, but Morag didn't see a second of the film through her tears. Three weeks later, Chris was declared fit and returned to the North Sea with David and Duncan to finish the job. I didn't want to lose my nerve, says Chris, who is still a sat diver. I'm proud of him, adds Duncan. Many would have said, this is too dangerous, I'm not coming back. The following April, Chris and Morag got married in an emotional ceremony near their home. David couldn't be there, but, says Chris, at the reception, people were buying Duncan whiskies all night and they were telling me, I don't even want to speak to you. I just want to hug you. A band played until 4am and the place was jumping, recalls Morag. People knew it was the wedding that almost never was. Chris and Morag have since adopted a little girl, Eva. They finished their house, but their life plans have accelerated. We're selling the house and moving to France already, says Morag, smiling. I've had a glimpse of dying and I'm not scared, says Chris. I know I'm lucky to have a second chance. I always had a lust for life, and the accident only made that stronger. For more RD talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.